0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Here we go. The strategy from the president right now is crystal clear. He is going to be spreading uh, conspiracy theories and falsehoods, uh, likely for the days
1: to come. Psychologically, he thought it was very important to declare victory and say there was
2: any possibility that he could be a loser.
0: People say to me, you gotta be crazy. How can you sing in times like these? Don't you read the news? Don't you know the score? How can you sing when so many others grieve? By way of a reply, I say a fool such as I Who sees a song as somewhere to begin Doing research about polling place consolidation and the vast majority of people said they expected election results on election night because most people are not as familiar with vote by mail because not that many states have it Uh, and when i saw that data i had like a panic attack trump is going to say that all of the ballots that come in after election day are fraudulent and the american public is going to
3: believe him because they think election results should come in on election night Roughly one year ago, here in the U.S., we had an election, and it wasn't just an all-hands-on-deck effort by tens of thousands to drive out the vote in the midst of a pandemic. It was an entire painstaking process, from Election Day through swearing-in, to ensure that every vote would get counted, that voters would be the ones to determine the outcome— At the top, you heard from my friend and colleague, Jiggy Geronimo, who runs a progressive research collaborative. As lawyers, strategists, advocates, and organizers worked tirelessly to ensure the election would be free and fair, many of us realized we had a corresponding messaging problem to tackle, narrating to American voters what was happening so they felt motivated to participate, secure in doing so by mail assured that counting delays were to be expected, and empowered to demand the leaders we elected be sworn in to govern in our name. One of the people in this endeavor was Tyler Lewis, who at the time was the Director of Coalition Communications and Research at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. I asked him what the coalition and the broader voting rights movement sought to understand through their research. Pardon Tyler's squeaky chair
1: it was what should we say about what is what the experience of the election aftermath was going to feel like to people like people were accustomed to you know waking up the next day and knowing who the who the president is and knowing who the senators are and knowing who their local elected officials are and so we we knew that there would be both genuine concern about something that would feel different and feel probably uncomfortable But also, we knew that that the former president and other folks who were interested in undermining the election would take advantage of that that anxiety.
3: So there was a need to explain what people should expect in an election unlike any we had experienced. What was it going to feel like to wake up on Wednesday morning or maybe have stayed up all night Tuesday and be in this not knowing And that not knowing could potentially feed a sense of distress and create inroads for the right-wing lies about the election. How do we make sure that utterly false narrative doesn't gain fertile soil in which to root?
1: And what we found is that people were really ready to understand that. They were ready to say, oh, that makes sense to me that in a pandemic where more people are voting by mail and more people are nervous about going in person to vote, that it might take a little bit longer for things to actually play out. And what we found was that people didn't think about that until we sort of told them about it. And then once they were told, they were willing to accept that as a rationale.
0: The thing that we found the most compelling was that election officials need to count every vote. It's a very, very simple message. And that in itself was enough to make people feel like, yeah, we should wait as long as we need to for election results because every vote needs to be counted.
3: And if if the votes are gonna take longer, then that's okay. The message they landed on was an affirmative, values-based frame, rather than a practical explanation like, the pandemic means delays, or votes will take longer to count. Both of these are fine as exposition, but for a top-line message or slogan, you need to convey what we stand for. Equally important, that message had to be an affirmation, as opposed to the frequent default on the left, which is to frame our aims in terms of what we oppose. Progressive demands are often a stop and a don't, an end this and a block that. While it is absolutely true that already engaged progressive activists respond with time, money, and likes to this messaging, research shows that enlarging the base, engaging folks who agree with us but aren't yet active, requires making an affirmative demand. And mixed into all this is a lot of emotion, principally fear. And that fear, of course, is compounded by the pandemic and the very real threats coming from the current government. We had to find a way to respond. What we know about fear is that it's an inhibiting emotion for most people. It makes folks who are not already activists want to shut down and block things out. So in our messaging, we can't let people's absolutely justified fears and sense of demoralization be a reason to look away and disengage. And that requires making it clear. This is about you. That everyday voter across this country being part of this process. And whatever happens here is about whether or not every single one of our voices will be heard and every single one of our votes will be counted. And it's great to do that in words, but that's insufficient. People don't consume information just purely by reading text. It has to be brought to life in every possible medium. That's where artists and strategists at the Center for Cultural Power consistently come through. In this case, with this beautiful ad called Backbeat.
1: Voting is the backbeat of this country. It's
3: what gives everyone a stage.
1: What creates change and opportunity. It's what propels us forward. Things
0: are changing because our voices rose together. together. But a handful of politicians are trying to stop the beat. They're trying to silence us. One by one. We can't let that happen. We
3: all need
0: to be heard. We gotta turn up the volume. We gotta turn up. And protect protect our our freedom freedom to vote. vote. They can't stop the music. If we all sing at once.
3: But ads alone won't do it. Getting somebody to pay attention for more than a second as they're scrolling across their feed is pretty tough. And here is where Into Action, a content lab working at the intersection of art and social change, made up of talented artists and designers, came into this work. Here's Simon Isaacs, the CEO of Interactions' parent company, Task Force PR.
2: First and foremost, we are inherently visual beings. Language comes second, visuals come first. We spend a lot of time and energy as we should. We need to spend at least the same amount of energy on the visual.
3: So right at the outset, as folks across the voting rights space, including Jiggy and Tyler, were doing this research to arrive at count every vote, they connected with into action to make sure that there were appealing visuals to make people want to share the message.
2: Each piece of content looked very, very different. Um, So we created hundreds and hundreds of pieces for the overarching count every vote campaign. Not all of it said count every vote. It was all sorts of things, election night, you name it. Um, And it was all, all, each piece was designed specifically for individual communities. So if you're a veteran, you're going to like these kinds of pieces, potentially. If you're a skateboarder over here. If your issue is uh, on the uh, front lines of feminism, here's content that, that will, might resonate with you. We are as interested in the things that fall on the cutting room floor. It's all about volume, 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 volume. Number one, let's all think about how much content we all absorb every single day. Gone are the days of the, the big theatrical release and that's it. Or the, a few t- shows and that's it. Gone are the days of the Hope poster. We need to be able to operate at the pace of content in a, in a political sense. Number two is we need to create lots of different content for lots of different communities. What you what I like and what you like are going to be very different. That's also true for the organizations. And so we need lots of diverse visuals that that add up into a singular narrative.
3: What we know is that we can't necessarily rely on the media to spread an accurate, affirmative message. They're invested and interested in conflict. And so knowing that, we have to recognize that a message is like a baton. If it gets dropped anywhere along the way, it's not heard. And by definition, it couldn't possibly be persuasive.
2: Now, we know, you know that a piece of communication coming from somebody that you know and somebody that you trust is way more effective than any ad coming from any organization. Our job is to help people communicate really effectively with their friends, give them the tools and resources that they need to advocate on our behalf. So the content continues to click up. But again, you know, 1.1 billion views immediately all organic, not a single dollar in paid, and all coming from somebody sharing it with a friend. When we started to see celebrities saying it, when we started to see like Carrie
1: Washington and you know John Legend and, and those types of folks saying the message, even before we had talked to them, because we did eventually talk to them about stuff, but we started seeing them retweeting things and, and, and sort of picking up the language themselves, and that's when we knew that it was really working. Because like you, you, know, the dream of a communicator is for someone to use your message that you didn't talk to first. And that's how you know it's penetrated.
3: All of that was laying the groundwork and the preparation leading up to election week, for which I became part of this massive group effort. Several weeks before the election, we began conducting nightly research, both qualitative and quantitative, with a dedicated team of pollsters in order to understand how the public was making sense of everything happening, and to examine how they would respond to potential machinations by the administration to sow doubts, spread lies, sabotage, and eventually even attempt to overturn the election. Informed by academics, disinformation experts, political strategists, lawyers, and organizers, some of the nefarious actions we imagined the administration would take included Attorney General Bill Barr deciding to intervene, legal challenges, of which we saw many, state legislators intervening with the count or with the certification. On a nightly basis, we were fielding all kinds of instruments, and in them we would posit these different scenarios to our audiences, and then test out different kinds of messaging responses to see what felt mobilizing, and more than anything, what conveyed the full truth that in fact this was the most recounted, watched, and verified election of our lifetimes. No one had lived through
0: sitting president of the United States attempting to declare an entire election to be invalid in front of their eyes and attempt to stop the count and attempt to all of the things that happened in in the aftermath of the election. And so we were trying to prepare for a reality that no one had experienced and then try to ask people questions about how they might feel or what message might resonate with them in a situation they had never lived through.
3: Do you remember the message around sort of election day
0: Yeah, I feel like part of our role during that time, in addition to telling people what to say, was also just allowing people to process their feelings together in real time. And I think it was helpful that we basically everything that we predicted would happen happened, right? We told them the day before Election Day, we said, hey, tomorrow night is going to feel bleak. It is going to look bleak because Republican votes are gonna get counted first. It's gonna look like Trump has a lead, but don't worry, the mail-in votes are coming. We even made a whole bunch of GIFs about the mail-in votes are coming. The thing we found though, is no matter how much you know something is going to happen, it does not change the actual experience of like how you feel when it is actually happening.
1: We all knew it was gonna happen. So we had sort of two brains at the same time all day long, where we sort of were emotionally with everybody else in the country, but also trying to sort of pull ourselves out of it so we could pull everyone else out of it. So we were still trying to push out messaging and remind people to stay calm and stay on message and stay focused.
3: One of the central things that was coming through in the data is that when our side registered panic, that actually fed the right-wing narrative that lent credence to this idea that something was off here. So a lot of what ended up being most critical was truly just narrating what to expect at every turn, from the not only expected but desirable delay in knowing the outcome, because of mail-in voting, to the anticipated change in who was receiving votes. One of our mantras in this time was, early votes are counted late. We were telling folks
0: to be confident, because if it seems like we're panicking, then they start to spin in their story like, oh, look, the left is panicking.
3: But if we project confidence, it doesn't feed into that idea. Even in the very best of times, staying on message is incredibly challenging. And in this time of overwhelming emotion compounded by anxiety and grief from the pandemic, doing so is all that much harder. When we're overloaded, people revert automatically to what's sometimes called system one or instinctive thinking. And in this case, what that sounds like is the understandable impulse to narrate our fears.
1: Yeah, what they wanted to say, I think, was some variation of, this is terrible, this is 2016 all over again. Like, how can we live in a country so this many people would vote for this particular individual? It was all of that kind of stuff. People wanted to sort of go to doomsday. And we all knew that that was not going to help us.
3: The fear is real, the pain is real. A lot of people voted for this guy, not just in 2016, but in 2020. But when we're thinking about strategic communications, about the act of framing, it's about what are you gonna foreground? And by definition, what are you gonna send to the back or even out of view? Despite the pain and fear and concern, what we needed to make most present for our audiences is that we got this. We know what we're doing. We've got it under control. The will of the people will prevail. And the people that the majority of us elected are going to be in our White House. And so it's totally fine to express the fear, to talk about the concern, to lift up all of the horrors. In fact, it's important. But that's for your indoor voice. And for your outdoor voice, you have to focus on what is it I need people to understand and what is it I need them to do. So then came Saturday, and the incredible celebration felt not just across this country, but around the world.
1: I heard screaming outside. I already knew what happened. I had to run here and celebrate with everyone, man.
3: We had to move from the messaging of count every vote to the next place we went. Voters decided. And here is where it became a case of taking yes for an answer and bringing that certainty and the joy in it to the fore. Where the work of organizers to help get folks out to celebrate itself became the message. To have people out visibly celebrating, transmitted, we know that the outcome is clear.
1: Best day of my life, best day of the year, best way to conclude 2020.
3: (laughs) The celebrations were glorious, but didn't last long.
1: So we knew that there was gonna be a point where the election was gonna be called. And we also knew that our opposition was going to reject it out of hand. And so we knew that we needed to reinforce this idea that after all the votes are counted, it means the voters decided something. Like it was sort of the next logical extension of the counter of vote, right? Their votes get counted, their voices matter, it doesn't matter who, what we all think should happen, the voters get to decide. And then once they've decided, we need to move on because that's what we always do. It's what we've done every election prior. So why should it or would it be any different? But it also enabled us to remind people that they have the power in this country. And so often in the work that I do in civil rights is about reminding the people that we work on behalf of that they have power, that that's what this is about, right? And the movement has always sort of grabbed that power and reinforced it and used it for the betterment of of both the people that we care about and the overall country when we do that. When we know that we are the ones with power in a democracy, in a just place, you know, we all live better lives. And people needed to be reminded of that in that moment.
3: It was absolutely critical to have this super simple messaging that centered the voters because too often, our default is to point out all of the egregious things that the other side is doing. In this case, that was succinctly encapsulated by the desire to call it a coup. Whether or not the actions Trump and his loyalists took constituted a coup is a topic for a different podcast. Whether or not it was a strategic choice to not just call it a coup, but have this be our overarching repeated message is an entirely separate question. What scholars of authoritarian regimes indicated and what research conducted throughout the cycle showed was that portraying Trump as a strong man was fundamentally detrimental to our cause. What we saw in testing during his presidency was that characterizing him as an authoritarian dictator actually backfired with soft Trump supporters who harbored some attraction to his make-your-own-rules bravado. And among our base, it made people less inclined to turn out, because it seems too much like a lost cause. That's why we had to adopt this we-got-this confidence and narrate what our side was doing, rendering voters as the heroes of the story. Yes, there is room for villains, but they don't get the top billing in our tale. A basic principle of messaging is what you fight, you feed. This is why, again, we were better off saying count every vote and better off declaring voters decided And after that, the will of the people will prevail, rather than this is an attempted coup, which, while arguably accurate, leaves people no clear place to go and for many little will to fight.
1: We don't want to tell people that, like, you voted, we counted your vote, and now they're going to go off and find a way to to manipulate it. People aren't going to like that. That's not going to make them feel good. People want to talk about the lawsuits and all of these things, when really we just need to keep reminding people that we counted their vote. And you decided, and someone won, and someone lost. And now it's time to actually do the business of governing this country.
3: But of course it didn't stop there. Trump was determined to find something to grasp onto so that he could stay in the White House. And this is when all eyes turned to Michigan, where initially there was a deadlock at the Wayne County Board of Canvassers. Wayne County, of course, home to Detroit. At first, it seemed that the board might not certify the results. Two
0: Republicans on the Wayne County Board of Canvassers are back in the spotlight tonight. Monica Palmer and William Hartman are attempting to rescind their votes to certify the election in Wayne County. The board agreed to certify the election and passed a resolution for a state audit of the counts. Now, Palmer and Hartman are doubling back on that decision, signing affidavits stating they were bullied into certifying the election.
3: But then, under impeccably coordinated and well messaged pressure from folks in Michigan, the board did their jobs. That led Trump to take it up to the state legislature by inviting two Republican leaders from Michigan to come to the White House for a little chat.
0: Meanwhile, state GOP leaders are part of one of the most controversial White House meetings
2: in recent memory. Leader Mike Shirky and Speaker Lee Chatfield jetted off to Washington, D.C. this morning. It's been concern among some that the president would try to get them to overturn
1: Michigan's election results, taking its electoral votes away from President-elect Biden.
3: This, of course, required a strong, clear response from leaders in Michigan who staged actions around these two lawmakers' sudden trip. I mean, hats
0: off to the Michigan organizers on the ground for this. They followed him to the airport with signs at like five in the morning, and then they coordinated with other organizers in Washington, D.C., who then greeted him at the airport in Washington, D.C., and it was all over the news. There was so much riding on this meeting. Um, And of course, we worked with the folks in Michigan to prepare you know, messaging for either scenario, depending on what happened. We held a rapid response briefing in the hours before they were supposed to come out of that meeting so that depending on what they said coming out of that meeting,
3: folks would know exactly what to say. We had seen through testing there were two lines that kept proving effective over and over again. One of them was most of us believe that for democracy to work for all of us, it must include us all. And the other was the assertion that, In America, voters pick our leaders. Our leaders do not pick which voters to heed and which to silence. And clearly this resonated precisely because what the GOP is engaged in is what they've always done, which is attempt to silence and ignore, defame and discredit Black, Indigenous, young, and new Americans. It's no accident that all of this came down to Detroit, which of course is where the concentration of Black and Brown folks live in Michigan because it's very clear which people the GOP wanted to disenfranchise in this process. And it is awful that this is what was and very much is happening in our country, arguably the basis of our country. And so we need to both lift this up, as we did by making explicit mention of race and calling out what some politicians were doing and why, and also empower voters to demand something different.
1: I think from a civil rights perspective, which is distinct from, but obviously overlaps a bit with sort of broader progressivism in lots of ways, there is often a real concern about the lies we tell as Americans. And so truth-telling becomes, in the civil rights context, really valuable to the movement. And so for a lot of civil rights activists, like it is incredibly important to tell the truth about what's happening, because we have so rarely done that. and And I agree with that. We should be telling the truth about things. Where it tips over into a problem, as you're sort of articulating, is when only the only thing people hear is what the other side is doing and they're not hearing what, what the side that's supposed to be representing them is doing, they either feel despondent because no one's out here trying to protect me, or if they are persuadable, they go into that camp because it's the only thing they're hearing. And so we have to remember, I say this to my colleagues all the time, that you should be thinking about this as like a a debate where there are two arguments that are that are loud and obviously we want one to be ours to be louder than theirs in a perfect sort of debate people are hearing two sides and they're picking the one that they like the best which is why we test the message right to see if ours is going to win out in that debate and we knew ours would and so we had to sort of remind people that we need to keep saying the thing that we knew was going to win because that was going to depress people's freak out about everything going on and embolden them to sort of go back and say to their elected officials, guys, we did this. You don't need to mess with this. And that was who the people were going to hear from and listen to, were like actual real voters out in the world.
3: And as hard as all of that was, there was still arguably the very worst part ahead of us. January 6th. It It
0: was a hard day because we were watching this horrific event happen at the Capitol. And at the same time, We were frantically trying to figure out how to respond to it. And there was a discussion about, do we call the insurrectionists terrorists? Because on the one hand, terrorist is a very negative, strong word that evokes a lot of emotion for people. However, as a brown woman who has had that word shouted at her uh, in the aftermath of September 11th, um, I felt very strongly that we should not use that word because the outcome of when we when we use the word terror, the outcome of what tends to happen as a result of using that word always tends to impact black and brown
1: communities. At the core of this, like we have sort of embarked on this project of being really honest about what it means to live in a white supremacist country. And so being able to say, this is what this is, this is what this represents, but also to be able to say, this is not who we actually want to be as a country. And that listen, we have been telling you for months that this is how the election was gonna play out, that voters were gonna, every vote was gonna be counted and voters were gonna make the decision. And a bunch of people showing up at the Capitol with guns doesn't get to overturn the will of the people. We needed to minimize, it was important, we needed to sort of balance that this was something that had never really happened before in quite the way that it did, with a recognition that like, this country can withstand that kind of assaults, because the people made a decision that the system must recognize.
3: So this is the tension that we occupy. This is the tension in our messaging. On the one hand, it's absolutely inaccurate to say this is not who we are, because Newsflash, it obviously is. Look what just happened and what keeps happening in various different forms. But this is not who we hope to be. What happens now? What do we say about what's happening across key states like Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Texas, where Republican state legislatures have passed sweeping voter restrictions? Restrictions that once again target communities of color, by shutting down polling places, curtailing vote-by-mail, shortening voting periods, criminalizing, giving food and water to people in line, and sabotage future elections by eliminating trusted election officials and handing power to partisan state politicians.
0: President Donald Trump may have left office, but his stolen election claims are still driving policy. Lawmakers in 33 states are considering 165 restrictive voting bills this year, according to an analysis by the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law. Nearly half of all those restrictive bills address
3: mail or absentee voting, limiting who can vote by mail or who gets their ballot automatically in the mail. Small tweaks to the law that can have a huge effect on who turns
0: out to vote. We have a huge opportunity to pass Legislation that would preempt a lot of these attacks that we're seeing on the state level, both in terms of the attacks on the freedom to vote, but also in terms of the attempts to sabotage the elections. So if Congress could just get their act together, given that we have a majority and pass
3: this bill already, I would feel a lot better. While legislative fights play out at the state and federal level... What we must keep front and center is that we're talking about people's lives. And that has to mean a whole lot more than mere lip service. It has to come through in what we deliver.
1: I think we have to sort of continue this messaging that we've been talking about around freedom to vote and around voters getting to make the choices about who represents them, and then who gets to do the things in their name that we want them to do. I think one of the challenges that we have as civil rights organizations is you know every two years you know everyone comes out of the woodwork to tell black and brown people they need to come out and vote and black and brown people grouse and say oh yes here you come again i haven't seen you since two years ago but thank you for coming to my door and reminding me that i need to vote i guess i'm going to pick one of you guys to vote for and oh which one of you is going to do a thing that i need Which one of you is going to fix the pothole in front of my house? Which one of you is going to stop police from killing me and my family? Which one of you is going to make sure that I can actually cast my ballot and have it, you know, and have it counted, right? Because so much of the emotional and physical labor of democracy in this country is on the backs of brown and black folks and women. And those are often the people that are legislated for the last, if at all. And so, and, and these people are not stupid. They don't know all the fancy words, but when you show up, they're going to say, oh, didn't you say you were going to do these three things that haven't happened yet? Why am I voting for you again? And I do not know the answer to that question. I don't think any of us do yet.
3: And of course, Tyler's right. I have no trouble admitting despite my job, not everything is a messaging question. At the end of the day, you have to actually do the things that you've said you would. But it is in the realm of messaging that we can make deliberate choices about what it is we're having people focus on in order to make them feel that it's worth taking and sustaining the action required to elect leaders who will govern in our name and hold them to account for delivering once they're in office.
0: I mean, I will say the count every vote voters decided like that week was just like, it was like beautifully executed. Um, Like, I don't think we could have, hoped for it to go any better. There was no like big giant protest that went off the rails. The voters decided celebration was exactly the right tone. It was perfectly timed. And so just the way that all played out in the public narrative, I don't think it could have been better.
3: We had in this election the absolute abuse of the word unprecedented. Because there's really little else to describe every single step of this and just how challenging it was. And we also had in this election record turnout in the midst of a pandemic and every kind of deliberate barrier set by Republican legislators, by the Republican candidate running for president to try to keep people from voting and keep trusted election officials from counting and keep legislators from certifying that result. As we approach 2022 and what will surely be every attempt, many already underway, To block people from voting and sabotage elections, we must remember what can happen when we are sending a clear and simple signal about what we stand for. When we narrate what we desire to have in the world, we help our audiences want to become part of making that come true. Words to Win By is a Wonder Media Network production. The show is produced by Grace Lynch, Brittany Martinez, and Sundus Hassan Nulli, with editorial support from Ale Tejeda, Carmen Borca Carillo, Liz Brown, Anthony Torres, and Jillian Marcellus. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Anat Shanker Osorio. Our theme music is written by T.R. Ritchie, produced and arranged by Dan Leone. If your words don't spread, they don't work, so please let others know and rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: A song is somewhere to begin To search for something worth believing in If changes are to come There are things that must be done And a song is somewhere to begin
3: Hey everyone, one more thing. I wanted to tell you about another show from Wonder Media Network. I think for all of us, we know that being in this pandemic has been incredibly hard. And for parents in particular, struggling between the work that we do outside the home and the work that we've always done in it has stretched us incredibly thin. In season two of White Picket Fence, host and single mom Julie Kohler asks, Why does it have to be this way? We'll hear from experts, activists, and parents as they unpack the caregiving crisis in America and reveal how these unacceptable conditions were set long before COVID-19 ever hit American shores. Julie explores the myths about race, gender, families, and the economy that have gotten us to a point where so many parents, and especially mothers, are cracking. She also looks at how the pandemic can serve as a tipping point to build the political will for an alternative approach, one that puts caregiving at the center of our economic well-being. I've known Julie for years as a friend, fellow organizer, activist, and thinker, and her incredible work needs to be heard. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.